and so we turn to what's probably slightly more familiar uh, territory in terms of what we think of when we think of apologetics. Uh, I think we'll go into looking at arguments for the existence of God. Uh, we quote from Craig here as he says, uh, I think it's absolutely true, he says, the last half century has witnessed a remarkable resurgence of interest in natural theology. That's what this area is called. I'm going to shut the door at the back here. Um, he defines natural theology as that branch of theology that seeks to provide warrant for belief in God's existence apart from the resources of authoritative propositional revelation. Um, so this is the idea of sort of working from the ground upwards to discover God's reality and something of his nature as opposed to the idea of God kind of reaching downwards to reveal himself in a more um, personal uh, directive manner. And of course, if you might very well believe that one can do both. Uh, and uh, it's interesting to try and, and unify those projects uh, to help us to understand God. And remember what Locke uh, we were saying, was saying earlier about the fact that if something claims to be a revelation from God, or don't we still have to, in some way, make judgments about, well, is that a revelation from God? Can we, can we trust that? Um, uh, the philosophical place that we start from often has a big influence on what we make of uh, evidence and arguments about what's the best explanation of this evidence. Um, so, for example, if we're talking about um, the resurrection uh, and historical evidence for the resurrection, resurrection of Jesus as a good argument for thinking that Christianity is true. Well, if I come at that argument um, with a materialistic worldview, it's going to take a lot of evidence to convince me that a miracle happened because I don't believe that there is a God. So I certainly don't believe miracles are possible. Um, whereas if I am open to the possibility of God's existence, if I'm an agnostic, and I look at a historical revelatory type uh, argument, it would take, uh, I still want evidence maybe, but it would take less evidence to convince me because I'm not starting from such a sceptical viewpoint. Um, so certainly within the tradition of what's called classical apologetics, people tend to argue like we were looking at um, Chad Meister and his apologetic triangle uh, earlier this morning to argue from um, uh, trying to argue that it's reasonable to think there's some kind of a God as uh, sort of setting the, f the, the field for then arguing about that there's been a particular revelation from God because um, it, it uh, makes people less initially sceptical of that revelation claim than they would be if they didn't even believe that there was a God, you see. So the classical tradition tends to kind of build in that sort of logical progression um, I've just put a couple of book covers up there as illustrative of the kind of work, kind of cutting-edge work that's really being done in this burgeoning field. Um, Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology is edited by William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland, another excellent American Christian philosopher. That's a big, thick tome of a book with some really high-level uh, work on arguments for God. Um, Douglas Groothouse, who's here at the conference on the apologetics track, Edited with James F. Sennett, a book called In Defense of Natural Theology, a post 
Humean assessment. Um, lots of atheists are of the view that the 18th century Scottish philosopher David Hume basically did, did it in for natural theology. And people are saying today, no, he didn't. And um, there's lots of new arguments, indeed, that, that weren't even thought of a couple of hundred years ago. Um, so you've got to, um, as an atheist, deal with uh, some very high-level work from Christian thinkers these days, advancing new and very interesting arguments. In terms of uh, Craig's material in the book, um, this little diagram, hopefully helpful, I've got at the centre here an argument called the ontological argument, and around that three other types, categories of argument that Craig tends to give in this area um, of just natural theology, a uh, cosmological argument, moral argument, the teleological or design type of argument. And I put them around the edge of this central ontological argument because it's the way Craig kind of views it that the, uh, these other arguments are in a sense supportive of this ontological argument which is a sort of catch-all. Uh, it's the argument that tries to prove the most in one go, as it were, about God. Uh, and is supported by the more arguments that you think there are that show at least something about God that matches up with what the ontological argument argues, the more plausible perhaps this central um, way of looking at God uh, becomes for people. I want to say something very briefly uh, about um, just the standard structure of arguments in logic and philosophy. Um, because Craig um, makes very good use, particularly in his debates, of very carefully laying out for people what the argument is that he's making in as short a form as, as, as possible so that you can follow it. And if you disagree with it, know where you disagree with it. And if you're going to disagree with it, know where you have to uh, disagree with. Because this is a um, famous example from Aristotle, mentioned already. He says, uh, first premise, first truth claim, Socrates, another ancient Greek guy, Socrates is a human. Second truth claim, second premise, all humans die. Conclusion, therefore, Socrates will die. Now, this is one of those things that is intuitively obvious that this conclusion follows from these premises and that if these premises are both true, then this conclusion must be true as well. Uh, it's a form of argument Aristotle called the, the syllogism. See our word logic, logos, etc. buried in, in here. It's the shortest unit of argument that you can have. It's composed of two truth claims, two premises leading to a particular conclusion. Once you know how to build a syllogism, a unit of argument, you can of course, like a daisy chain, chain them together into longer and longer arguments uh, with more and more sort of sub-arguments in them and so on. Um, this is a really good diagrammatic way of thinking through an argument. Uh, any argument you need to ask three questions about. And if you answer no to any of these three questions, then it's an argument that you shouldn't trust. It's an unsound argument that doesn't support its conclusion. But if you're confident about saying yes in every instance, then you should be equally confident about the conclusion of that argument. And those three questions are, 
Are the premises, the truth claims, clear and unambiguous? That is, do you know what's being claimed? And are you sure there's no ambiguity, no double meaning in what's being claimed that the argument is kind of playing upon or trading upon in order to mislead you? So, use of clear definitions, clearly understanding what's being said. Secondly, does the conclusion really follow from the premises? If the premises were true, would that conclusion have to be true? Would it follow? So, if Socrates is a human, and if all humans die, then Socrates will die. That looks at the logical structure of the argument, the, what's called the logical validity of the argument. It's not asking the, the, the question, the next question, are those premises true? Supposing Socrates is not a human being, but the name of a mountain, say. Well, then we're talking cross purposes and we're not really getting an argument that's going to, you know, the mountain's not going to die, it might erode, or, you know, um, talking at cross purposes and so on. So we need to be clear what we're talking about, no ambiguity, to make sure that the conclusion would follow from the premises if they were true. So it's a, a logically valid argument. And then it's a still further question of, well, are those premises true? So that, uh, are you confident that they're true? And to the same degree that you're confident of answering yes to those questions, then you should have confidence uh, in the conclusion of the argument. Peter, what does it mean, first question? Are the premises clear, I mean, understandable? Clear, yes, understandable. Um, so, for example, if my first premise of my argument is a quotation from Lewis Carroll's uh, Alice in Wonderland, and it, my premise is, uh, "'Twas brillig, and the slithy toes did gyre and gumble in the wabe," you're going to have trouble trusting the conclusion of the argument that I construct on the basis of this premise, aren't you? Because you haven't got a clue what I just claimed, because you don't understand what that means. What have I just claimed? Now, actually, Lewis Carroll, in his writings elsewhere, defined his terms, and he, he said, you know, brillig means this, and to gyre and gimbal is to move in a certain way, and a, a slithy tove is an animal that's a cross between a pig and a peacock, or whatever. Um, and so you can actually translate that bit of nonsense poetry into a proposition that you can understand clearly. You know, he's saying it was this time of the day and these animals that look like this were moving in a certain way around a sundial. Now I could have a, an argument that started with that as a premise because you understand what's being claimed there but not if it's just nonsense words or you don't understand what's being meant which is a slightly different thing from is there an ambiguity, a double meaning in the language that the argument trades upon. So, uh, think of an English example. If I say um, a plane, P-L-A-N-E, is a carpenter's tool. It's the sort of tool that you use for planing a bit of wood flat and smooth. A plane. But in English we use the same word, spelt the same way, to mean an aircraft. Like a Boeing 747. So if I said, premise, a plane is a carpenter's tool. Second premise, the Boeing 747 is a plane. Conclusion, therefore the Boeing 747 is a carpenter's tool. Okay, I've now got to a ludicrous conclusion, 
because the argument's drawing upon an ambiguity, a double meaning in the word, in the term plain. It's been given two different definitions as, it's, as it reoccurs through the argument. And it, it's, this is very important, particularly to one of the arguments we'll look at later, that you, when a, a term reappears in an argument, in an important way, at least, um, you want it to have the same meaning, so that the, uh, the, the force of the argument is carried through, talking about the same thing from beginning to end, so that the truth claims track through to supporting the, the conclusion. Whereas, as in the plain, plain example, it clearly doesn't, because we're talking at, at cross-purposes. Yeah. And then, does that conclusion really follow? If this and this, then would this be the so? And, well, are they this and this? In which case, the conclusion probably is the case. So let's look at that central, though Craig talks about this one last, uh, and he's been of late defending this a little bit more in public and debates and things. Uh, and it's actually an argument that I've warmed up to myself. I, I, I spent a long time being quite sceptical about this argument. And so I would very much understand if you are quite sceptical about this argument. Um, I, for a long time I thought it was a valid, logically valid argument. I even thought that it was actually true, but that it didn't have any apologetic bite, any purchase on people who didn't already believe in God. So I thought it wasn't any use as an apologetic argument, even though I thought it was a good argument. I've recently changed my mind on that uh, um, with Craig, and now I think that it's actually a, a, a valid argument and a decent argument. Uh, apologetic argument as well but it is a very abstract one and particularly to people who kind of aren't trained in philosophical argumentation and so on it can feel very much like a, a, a kind of trick with language there must be some kind of trick being played here um, so it's got a fairly limited use in, in terms of kind of doing popular apologetics uh, particularly um, but it does give us a way into talking about the nature of God um, and um, as a way of kind of drawing together as we'll see all the other arguments because the ontological argument kind of tries to do the job of proving God's existence all in one go this argument which is the way that the originators like Anselm used it this is it this, this is all we need that'll do the job today um, with Craig people tend to, to put it more in terms of this is a useful part of a case for the existence of God that includes other arguments um, which point to parts of what the ontological argument points to in its conclusion and the more parts of that conclusion are, are supported the more warm you'll tend to be I think towards this ontological argument it, it's a Greek term um, ontos means being what exists ontology is the study of being um, so epistemology, the study of knowing reality, ontology, the study of what is reality um, the ontological reasoning about being so it's an argument for the existence of God that's, that's reasoning about the kind of being that God is, or what we mean when we say God and it, re it comes in all sorts of sophisticated forms in lots of complicated logical calculus and stuff but it really boils down to this single syllogism um, first premise 
if it is possible that God exists, then God exists. I'll, I'll unpack these in a moment, but just get the general form. If it's possible that God exists, then God exists. The second premise is that it is possible that God exists. The conclusion that follows, logically, if those two are true, is of course that therefore God exists. If it's true that if it's possible that God exists, then he exists, and it is true that it's possible that God exists, then it is true that God exists. Yeah? So it's a logically valid argument. And there's no ambiguity, I don't think, in the terminology here. Um, We mean the same thing by God, by possible, by exists, as the terminology reoccurs. The real question and the debate about this argument uh, actually turns out to be over the truth of the premises. And indeed, really, it's premise two that is the one that all the debate is about. Because premise one, you can say, is true by definition. Um, Anselm, who originally came up with the kind of form of this argument, said, what we mean by God is the greatest possible being. God is the greatest being conceivable. Um, If there were a being that were greater than God, well then, that would be God. God, by definition, is the greatest possible being. Now, you can say... um, as I'm putting it in, in terms of what we might call uh, great-making properties. And we can define these great-making properties like this. They're properties or qualities that a being could have that are objectively valuable. You're, you're greater, more valuable. There's more value to the thing because it has this quality than because it lacks it. Uh, there are also properties that admit of a logically maximum degree. There's a... a Uh, a maximal amount of this property that you could have. Um, So first of all, the argument does depend upon buying into the the idea that there are objective values. It ties in very much with the moral argument uh, in that sense. There is an assumption here that there can be qualities that it's objectively valuable to have rather than to lack. And that admit of a logical maximum degree. So, on the left-hand column here, we've got non-great-making properties. Size is not a great-making property. You know, I'm bigger than some people in in terms of size, but that doesn't mean I'm more valuable than they are. Um, an elephant is larger than you are, but that in and of itself doesn't mean that the elephant is more valuable, is greater than you are. Um, spatial position and you often find it's weird this argument atheists arguing things like oh the earth is only a tiny little planet in some backwater galaxy it's not at the centre of the universe like we used to think it was and therefore people aren't important as they'd have to be if there was a god and therefore god doesn't exist you find this argument time and time again but just like size you know a, a diamond is really small but it's really valuable and really beautiful um Spatial position is not a great-making property. You are not uh, more valuable than I am because you're closer to the centre of the room. I'm not less valuable than you are because I'm standing at the edge of the room. Spatial position is not a great-making property. um, To use an example from Richard Dawkins when he jokingly talks about the ontological argument in The God Delusion, 
he kind of parodies it and says, well, you might as well say that since some things are smelly and some things are smellier than other things, and talking about one of Aquinas' other arguments, actually, you might as well say that there's a, there must be a peerless stinker, a um, smelliest possible being. Well, clearly that's nonsense, therefore the ontological argument and so on doesn't, doesn't work. But being smelly is not a great-making property. You're not more valuable, greater, because you're more smelly. And actually, on all of these, there's no logical maximum. You can always imagine something bigger than anything you imagine. Like, you can always imagine a higher number than any number that you mention. You can always add one, can't you? You can say, well, you know... Uh, this is six foot tall, that's seven foot tall. Well, I can imagine something eight foot tall. You say, it's only the size of the whole universe. Yeah, but I can imagine a bigger universe. You know, could be a bigger universe. There's no maximal size of universe that there could be, kind of thing. So, but on the right-hand side, we can, talk, I think, intuitively say there are some properties that seem to us to be great-making properties, um, like goodness, you're greater if you're good than if you're not good. Uh, and being holy would be to have the property of having the maximal amount of goodness. You can't get more good than perfectly good. If it intuitively seems to you that the concept of being perfectly good makes sense, then obviously you see that, well, there's no such thing as more good than perfectly good. So that would seem to be a great making property. Uh, power. The power to do things seems to be a good thing, you know, greater for having ability to do things than not, and it admits of a logical maximum in the concept of being almighty or being omnipotent, having all the power that it's possible to have, kind of. So that would seem to be a great making property. But of course, both of these are the kind of properties that people traditionally ascribe to God. We seem to be able to, from the concept of a greatest possible being, a being who has all of the, the greatest set of greatest, great-making properties, we seem to be able to deduce the kind of properties that traditionally religious believers ascribe to God. The particularly important one for this argument is when we come to the concept of being. And we make a distinction between contingent being, contingent existence, or existence dependent upon something outside of yourself, and necessary existence, existing if it's even possible that you exist. Contingent, necessary existence. Once we make that distinction, think intuitively we see that surely net to exist necessarily is greater than to exist contingently. And it's the logical maximum of the property of existing. There's no other category of existing apart from existing contingently or existing necessarily. There's only not existing as an alternative to those two categories, two ways of being. Yeah? If you kind of buy in to those assumptions and those intuitions, then I think you start buying into the ontological argument there's Alvin Plantinga again, who particularly famously put forward a version of this argument. It says, a maximally great being, a greatest possible being, must exist if its existence is possible, because necessary existence, that is, having the type of existence where you exist if it's even possible that you exist. So, so that it's not possible for you not to exist, if you see that, is a great making property. So given that the existence of a maximally great being is possible, 
By definition, it follows that a maximally great being therefore exists and exists necessarily. I'm trying to give a sort of concrete example that I think brings out this kind of intuition of what's going on here. To deny my existence, okay, one needn't claim that my existence is logically impossible or to deny the existence of life on Mars. You don't need to make the claim that it's impossible that there's life on Mars. All you need to do is say, well, there isn't any. Pete doesn't exist. He happens not to exist, even though it's possible that such a being exists. It's possible that there's life on Mars, but there isn't, you see. One can coherently, sensibly claim that I simply fail to exist despite admitting that my existence is possible. Yeah? Because I'm a contingent thing. However, to deny the existence of God, one does have to make the kind of metaphysically stronger claim that God's existence is impossible. You can't coherently claim that God fails to exist despite being possible, as you can coherently claim that Peter or the Loch Ness Monster fails to exist despite being logically possible. Because given what we mean by God, God's existence is either necessary and therefore actual if it's possible or impossible and therefore not actual God is either impossible for God to exist or it's necessary that God exists the one thing you can't sensibly coherently claim is that although it's possible that God exists he happens not to because he's not that kind of a thing it's not in the same kind of category of being as things like me, life on Mars, the Loch Ness Monster. And so to deny his existence, you have to make a stronger claim than you do when you deny the existence of life on Mars or the Loch Ness Monster or me. And so there's something about a price tag attached to denying the existence of God. What you have to say is, well, God, God's existence must be impossible then. Okay? And if you're prepared to kind of pay that price tag and make that claim, then of course you can avoid the conclusion of the argument. This is true of any argument. All any argument for anything, including for God, tries to do is to set up this connection whereby if you want to deny the conclusion, you have to be willing to kind of pay the price tag of saying, no, that argument isn't valid, or there's an ambiguity, or no, that premise isn't true. And with this argument, we've seen there's no ambiguity, it's logically valid, so you have to be able to pay the price tag of rejecting one of the premises. The first premise is true just by definition, it would seem. So you, in order to avoid the conclusion, you'd have to say, premise two um, is false. People might well be prepared to pay that price tag, though, of course. Might not think it's very high, Michael Peterson and I'll put it uh, in one of their books like this. It says, for any two objects, if one exists necessarily and the other not, that is, it exists contingently such that it could either exist or not exist, the first, the necessarily existent one, is greater than the second. 
it follows then that if God's existence were contingent, he wouldn't by definition be the best conceivable being, the greatest possible being. But that's what we mean by God. Um, therefore, God's existence is either logically necessary or logically impossible. God's existence is not logically impossible, hence it is logically necessary. Now, if the atheist is willing to kind of say, oh, well, okay, I was mistaken then. I used to think that God didn't exist even though he, he could. I now see that obviously, well, he can't exist. It's impossible for God to exist. And might want to start asking questions like, well, how do you know that? Why do you believe that? What reason do you have for that? Um, what can you put in the balance against my intuitions that there really is objective goodness, there really are these qualities of, of, of great making properties, that they do seem to form a coherent set, that they have these implications, and so on. Um, uh, Craig observed the ontological argument boils down to the the modal fact, modal logic is the, the logic of, of possibility and necessity and so on, that if God's existence is even possible, then God exists. If the unbeliever agrees that God's existence is possible, then he's logically committed to the conclusion that God exists. He's in a uh, self-contradictory position, and one way to resolve that contradiction is to say, well, okay, God does exist then. One way to resolve the contradiction would be to say, oh, well, God's existence must be impossible then, but you might think that there's a price tag attached to going in that direction that you are not prepared to pay. But some people might be prepared to pay it. People differ over uh, what lengths they're prepared to go to in order to avoid certain conclusions, don't they? Uh, that's why very often an argument that convinces one person isn't convincing to another person. Um, doesn't mean that they're it, the argument's all subjective or that, that, that it's you know, uh, not a good argument just because it doesn't convince everybody. There's hardly any arguments in any field, including philosophy, that convince everybody of what they're trying to argue for. Um, but the more people it, it convinces, the, the, usually based on the more basic an intuition the argument starts from, the, 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 the bigger a price tag you can attach to rejecting the premises and so, and so on the harder it is to reject the conclusion. So I actually think that this ontological argument is, is a logically valid, non-ambiguous, sound argument that's got some apologetic value, but a fairly restricted value, um, particularly for sort of non-philosophical um, academic kind of audiences. But it is quite a nice way of summarising what we're arg trying to argue to. What do we mean by God? Um, uh, part of my MPhil thesis was cashing out similar to Anselm's definition of God as the greatest possible being but talking about that link between goodness and beauty that I was talking about earlier and defining God as the maximally beautiful being a very uh, attractive way of describing and communicating what you mean by God now, I mean that there is the, the most beautiful being that it's possible for there to be and that he exists and that he wants to know you now that's kind of a more um, pathos engaging way of putting it, putting it, if you can explain that, than the more dry academic language of I think there is a greatest conceivable being. Whatever. Um, so I think there are um, useful different facets to this ontological argument 
Um, even if you don't think that it, like Anselm and so on, thought it's a knockdown argument that should convince everybody that does the whole job all on its own kind of thing. It has a useful kind of role in a cumulative case to play and so on. As you see, the other arguments are, try to unveil ties between some aspect of reality and some particular quality of God, usually. Like the moral argument tries to tie moral experience to the concept of there being a, a holy, personal holy reality, a morally good reality. Well, that's part of what the ontological argument tries to show, but it's only part of it. The cosmological argument tries to argue, say, from the existence of contingent objects, that there must be a necessarily existent first cause. Well, that's part of what the ontological argument is, is arguing. So the, the other arguments for God tend to take kind of one bite of the of the apple, if I can put it like that. Um, whereas the ontological argument tries to give you the whole apple all in one all in one go. Uh, but the more you think that these other arguments seem to be pointing in the same direction, Craig would say, um, the more plausible that argument also becomes to you. You can kind of see oh, this is kind of fitting everything together, making sense out of a lot of different bits of argumentation and experience that we have. Um, and so that gives us some reason to believe in the, in the hypothesis. Questions of, of clarification and, and objections and so on before we, we move on to something else? Uh, in the book of Craig's, uh, does he speak more about the properties, great making properties? Now, he doesn't speak very much. I mean, obviously, he's doing a fairly introductory kind of thing, but... find them uh, a bit more explained? Yeah, um, and this really gets you into... It also gets you into the field of philosophy called philosophical theology, where you try to think from philosophical first principles about the n- not just the existence of God, but the nature of God, and get into questions like, well, what, is, what does it mean to say that God is omnipotent? Or, 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 or omniscient, or knowing, and so on. How can we make philosophical sense of that and defend the, the possibility of there being a being who knows everything it's possible to know, or can do everything it's logically possible to do, or however we define it, and so on. There's a very good introductory book on this um, by an American philosopher called Thomas V. Morris. Thomas V. Morris. Um, and I'm going to be able to remember the title of that book. Um, let's see. Catholic, Thomas More? Um, I don't think he is Catholic, no. Um, let's have a look in here. Who was killed by Protestants? Yeah, he's a Protestant philosopher. Uh, index. Um, it might be called something like the lo- the logic of God or under- understanding God or something. It's terrible when your memory starts going, isn't it? Uh, yeah, uh, Thomas is in uh, t- uh, the usual. The Morris is M O R I S. Uh, yes, Thomas with an H. T- uh, Thomas with an H. Why isn't he in the index here? 
Um, yeah, but if, if you went onto like Amazon or whatever and put in Thomas V. Morris, a number of books will, will come up and you'll fairly be easily tracked down the one of his that's clearly on this concept of, it's called perfect being theology, where you work from the concept of a perfect being or greatest possible being and an understanding of those kind of qualities to trying to piece together a, a logically coherent, at least, a picture of what God might be like. Um, it doesn't necessarily tell you what God is like exactly, but it is very useful at the very least at rebutting objections to belief in God based upon saying, well, there couldn't be an omniscient being, or there couldn't be a being who was both all-knowing and all-powerful, because those qualities don't fit together. This would be one avenue of arguing that the second premise of the ontological argument was false, that it's not possible for there to be a greatest possible being who has more than one of these great-making qualities because, hey, they don't fit together. You might have them individually existing in something, but they couldn't both exist or all exist in the same being. That's one kind of major avenue of response to the ontological argument. My counter-response really is to say, in ourselves, I think we... Um, we exhibit qualities like goodness and power and knowledge. We don't have them to a maximal degree, because I'm not all-knowing or all-powerful or completely good, but I, I do at least have those qualities to a, to a partial degree. So I know that knowledge and power can coexist in one and the same being. Um, so that makes it, I think, more plausible to think that, that maximal knowledge and maximal power could coexist in the same being, because at least I know that they can coexist in a non-maximal state. What exactly is it about the maximal degree of those qualities that means they can't fit together? It seems to me my intuitions are that the burden of proof would be on the person who wants to say, yeah, I know that goodness and knowledge can both exist in the same thing, but, but surely being completely good and knowing everything couldn't couldn't coexist. I want to say, well, why? Yeah. Give me some reason. If, if your rejection of God's not just going to be a sort of an act of blind faith, then you ought to have some reason for thinking that it's not possible for such a being to exist. So maybe at the very least the argument puts the burden of proof again on the doubter. Yeah. So that's the ontological argument. Cosmological argument, much more kind of concretely understandable. It's the sort of argument where you can show people dominoes toppling over and talk about chains of causation, and science is all very much involved in causal chains and so on, and tracking down what's the cause of this, what's the cause of the other. Um, look at a couple of different versions. Uh, the most complicated one I think Craig looks at is this. Um, argument from the German philosopher Leibniz based on what's called a principle of sufficient reason. And there are various versions of this principle. Uh, Craig uses this one, uh, the idea that everything that exists has an explanation of its existence. Something exists, there must be an explanation of why it exists, he says. But that is either in the necessity of its own nature, it, it exists because it's the kind of thing that just has to exist, as it were, 
or that explanation is in some external cause. Um, everything that exists has an explanation of exist- its existence, either in the necessity of its in its own nature, or not in its own nature, but therefore in the nature of something outside of itself. Um, then he adds that um, if the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is 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 God, and you can can argue for that separately. Um, certainly, the explanation can't be uh, of the universe uh, can't be in the necessity of its own nature. He, he would argue because he would argue that the universe is a contingent thing, since it's made up of things that are contingent. Um, if you only add that the universe exists, then you kind of get these two deductions that follow here. From, from one and three, from this causal principle and the fact that the universe exists, it follows that the universe has an explanation of its existence, of course. Because the universe is something that exists, and anything that exists has an explanation of its existence in one of these two ways. Yeah, so that, that seems pretty straightforward. Um, from two and four from the idea that if the universe has an explanation then that's most likely God of some kind uh, and the fact that the universe does have an explanation of its existence it would of course follow that the explanation of the universe is God and that therefore there's, there's God um, again I think the, the premise of this is likely to be the one that causes most uh, contention that's going to be most argued about, apart from the causal principle at the beginning, um, is the idea that uh, if the universe has an explanation of its existence, that then it's in God. That, it, it, that the universe isn't something that is explained by the nature of its own being. That it's not something that exists necessarily. But I think a lot of atheists really admit that that premise is true. A lot of atheists encountering, for example, the, the, the fine-tuning design argument will say things like, well, you know, maybe there are lots of different parallel universes. Parallel universes talked about a lot in different scientific theories and so on. You know, those are kind of universes. They, they might exist or they might not. And if, you, if you're prepared to say things like there, there could or could not be universes, you seem to be thinking of universes of things that don't exist necessarily. You're thinking of them as things that exist contingently because you say, well, it, it could exist, but maybe it doesn't, even though they could exist. So you're thinking of the contingent things. So in other areas of discussions, it's fairly easy to find quotations from loads of atheists, philosophers, and cosmologists and so on who quite clearly think of universes as contingent things, things that aren't explained by the necessity of their own nature. Um, so it, it's kind of a bit rich to suddenly change ship on that issue when faced with an argument like this although of course uh, you can change ship as long as you're being prepared to be consistent in what you say elsewhere if you say, so they suddenly say oh well given this argument I suppose that I must, I must hold that universes are the sort of things that really do exist necessarily and um, that parallel universes are either impossible or exist necessarily, even though I used to think of them as contingent things. Um, but are they, again, willing to pay that price tag of making that shift in order to avoid this conclusion um, and to avoid the kind of intuitions 
that lead most people to think of physical things as contingent. And since the universe, the physical universe at least, is something that is composed of all the physical things that exist, doesn't that mean that the, the universe must be contingent as well? Um, Craig tells this lovely story, Nick, from another American philosopher called Richard Taylor. He says, suppose uh, you're going for a walk out in the woods and you see this sort of shiny sphere, this ball in the forest. And you think, how did that get here? You think it must have a cause doesn't just kind of, it's not kind of something that is sort of self-explanatory, it exists necessarily. So well, why, why is that there? Well, what if, what if that ball were, were twice the size? Would you still think the same thing about it? Oh yeah, yes. What if the ball was the size of the planet? Would you still ask, well, why is that there? You know, what, what caused that? Well, what if the ball was the size of a galaxy? So, what if the ball was the size of the whole universe? Does that suddenly change the, the intuition and the situation? That if it's just at any size smaller than the universe, we, we're tempted to ask, what explains that? And yet, just as soon as it gets exactly to the same size of the universe, we think, oh, well, there's nothing to explain. Seems a bit odd. Um, so he tells that kind of story... Um, that kind of illustration to kind of bring out the intuition and get people agreeing with him as he's going through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if the universe has an explanation, it doesn't explain it. It would have to be something outside of the universe, wouldn't it? And, and well, it, it does exist. Hang on a minute. That must mean that there's a God, you see? At which point, of course, you might then want to backtrack and say, oh, hang on a minute. I've been railroaded into agreeing with this conclusion here. I better reject one of the premises... Um, am I prepared to pay the price of doing that? Some people will say yes, some people will say no. no. Um, um. The argument in this area, cosmological arguments, that Craig's particularly famous for is what's called, called the Kalam cosmological argument. The Kalam's an Islamic term, um, an Islamic traditional of rational theology. And uh, they kind of uh, took over this argument from some early Christians and kept it going during the medieval period of the Dark Ages and so on, and then it kind of got rediscovered by the Christian West and given a kind of new lease of life um, by modern cosmology because of the Big Bang Theory. And Craig did his PhD thesis on this argument and put it out, putting it out there, and it's become one of the most talked about theistic arguments, principally because of Craig's defense of it. He says, uh, puts it into this very simple, again, single syllogistic form. And he says, premise one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Something begins to exist, then it must have a cause. Second premise, the universe began to exist. Conclusion, therefore, the universe has a cause. And then he'll mount further arguments to analyse what must be the nature of that cause to show that it, it has at least some of the properties that we traditionally associate with, with God. But that's a whole kind of extra step on from here. But you can at least see that this is getting towards the idea of a creator. Now, I am a little uncomfortable with this way of phrasing the argument. Here's, here's why I'm going to take a bit of issue with Craig. Um, this seems at first glance very straightforward, very intuitive, very uh, powerful. Um, Craig usually spends most of his time defending this second premise, 
which he does both from philosophical kind of mathematical arguments and from contemporary scientific uh, empirical arguments for Big Bang cosmology. Um, and either type of argument will work for the purpose. Um, he tends to say something like, this is just intuitively obvious. Um, things don't just pop into existence without, without cause. Even sceptical philosopher David Hume says that he would never believe that something just popped into existence without a cause. Things don't begin to exist unless they have a cause. That's just obvious. Well, <clears throat> far be it from me, but uh, I think there is an ambiguity here, the, the crucialness of the, the ambiguity question in an argument. When we say something X began to exist, I think there are two different things that we could mean. And that sometimes, a lot of the time, these two things coincide, go, go hand in hand, but that they don't necessarily go hand in hand all of the time. And that therefore there is a real difference between these two ways of understanding what it means to say it begins to exist. And I think that this difference has an impact on how we should formulate the argument. So, on the one hand, if we say X began to exist, the universe began to exist, the table began to exist, we might mean it, it came into existence. That is, it was added to a pre-existing set of reality at some time, T, before which X did not exist. So there was a time when an X didn't exist, but there is a, 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 a pre-existing context of reality, and at some particular time, X gets added to this set of reality, which from then on now includes the existence of X. Okay, so I um, get a block of stone and I chisel away at it until I've made a sculpture, and the sculpture has now come into existence and it now exists and continues to exist it's been added to reality the sculpture began to exist okay um, on the other hand we could mean X began to exist we could mean it has a finite past but if you got into a, a time machine and tracked its existence back in time you'd come to a first hour of its existence say before which there's no previous hour of, of its existence and all of that, but there is no there is no before, no pre-existing context into which it's been added necessarily. Now that the, the sculpture that I make, it both came into existence, and the sculpture has a finite past. That's something that exists. Okay. But the universe, when we're talking about the universe beginning to exist, in Big Bang cosmology, say, what we mean is the universe has a finite past. We don't mean the universe came into a pre-existing context of reality at a certain time. There was no time before time began at the beginning of the Big Bang, in Big Bang theory. So in a lot of instances, these two things go together, like the sculpture. Um, but when we're talking about the beginning of the universe, it certainly seems that they don't necessarily go together. Now, you know, again, I, this might depend upon your, what your intuitions are. I would certainly agree with Craig and David Hume that if anything comes into existence, 
in sense A here, then it must have a cause. Things don't just pop into existence without some reason. But I'm not so sure that anything that has a finite past must have a cause. At least, not when it's not also something that happens to have come into existence. If it's something that didn't come into existence but which has a finite past, as is the case, I think, when we're talking about the beginning of the universe, then at least my intuitions leave me behind uh, at that point, and I'm not so sure that it's intuitively obvious that the universe, as something that has a finite past, must have a cause, even though it didn't come into being. So we can distinguish, if we clear up that ambiguity in the language, we end up with two separate ways of putting the argument. The first is, whatever begins to exist in the sense of coming into existence has a cause of its existence. I, I certainly think that that's intuitively obvious to me at least. Um, second premise, the universe began to exist in the sense that it came into existence. So we've got the same meaning into these two premises. Um, it would follow from those two premises that therefore the universe has a cause. Unfortunately, none of the arguments Craig gives for the second premise of the Kalan cosmological arguments are arguments for this second premise. All, they're all arguments that the universe has a finite past. They're not arguments that the universe is something that came into existence. Because that's, that's actually not what we mean by talking about the beginning of the universe. Okay? So this argument is logically valid, but it's got a second premise that's not true, as far as we know. So that's a bad argument. On the other hand, we could clear up the ambiguity using the other meaning of begins, and we could argue like this. Whatever begins to exist in the sense that it's, it's not eternal in the past, it has a finite past, has a cause of its existence, Second premise, the universe began to exist in the sense that it's not eternal in the past, it has a finite past. Conclusion, therefore the universe has a cause. Now here, it's got a second premise, five here, that Craig's arguments for the second premise do support, and I think they're good arguments for this claim that the universe has a finite past. But it's got a first premise that, at least to me, isn't as intuitively obvious as the claim that whatever begins to exist in the sense that it comes into existence must have a cause. Um, it seems to be, in reply to this kind of criticism, that what Craig means by his original formulation of the argument is this second way of putting it. He thinks that it is intuitively obvious that if it, something has a finite past, then it must have a cause. That's not something that's part of our daily experience of causality. Well, our daily experience of causality is of things that um, have finite pasts and which come into existence at a certain time. I would say, sure, we know that those kind of things have, have causes, but do we know that things that have a finite past but which don't come into existence have a cause. I'm agnostic about that, truth be told. I just don't know. So the argument doesn't really carry any weight with me, but it might carry some weight with you. Might, you might think, well, that's obvious. So that's, 
yes. You know, um, maybe we just have a sort of difference of insight or opinion about that. Um, maybe you could think of some arguments that could could develop the argument, and you could think of some some argument in support of that that new way of putting the first premise that could kind of advance the discussion. So I tend to, f- to phrase the, the, this kind of Kalam argument from the idea that there's a beginning of the universe. I think there is a good argument here, but I would put it in a slightly different way. Um, and I put an emphasis like J.P. Morland does in his book Scaling the Secular City, where he uses the Kalam argument, but he puts it in a slightly different way in... Uh, not when he lays it out as premise, premise, conclusion, but when he discusses it, there seems to be this version is, is more in his mind. I'd say there was a first physical event. That is, all the arguments that say that there was a finite past to the physical universe, uh, philosophical ones, the, the cosmological ones, mean that if the universe is a series of physical events and it's got a finite past, then that means there was a first physical event the universe and then I would argue that all physical events have at least one cause outside of independent of themselves because they're contingent realities this is kind of close uh, kind of merging a little bit with the Leibnizian type of argument so I think it's I think to me it's obvious that physical things are contingent physical events are contingent and that they have causes outside of themselves it would follow from these that the first physical event must have had at least one cause outside of independent of itself okay so far now clearly the cause of the first physical event can't have been a physical event because we're saying, what caused the first physical event? If we agree that physical events need causes, what caused that physical event? It doesn't seem to me to make sense to say, well, it was the previous physical event. Or, there is no previous physical event. We're talking about the first physical event. It's like, if you're looking at a chain of dominoes falling over, one causes the next, falls over and causes the next domino to fall over, and you trace that line of causality back, you get to the first domino in the train of dominoes. You can't say, what, you know, what pushed over the first domino? Oh, well, it was the previous domino. <laughs> You're kind of led to, oh, it was the finger of the, <laughs> of the person who pushed it. Um, so the cause of the first physical event can't have been a physical event. Therefore, given that causes can, of course, uh, only be either physical or not physical, non-physical, the first physical event must have had a non-physical cause that's outside and independent of of itself. Now, the non-physical cause, a non-physical cause of the first physical event, it must be a personal reality. Uh, Because uh, this is uh, similar to an argument that Craig uses again, Um, if something is non-physical, there's only two types of non-physical reality. Uh, personal non-physical reality, an agent of some kind, a mind, or an abstract object. Some philosophers think that, for example, numbers are real things. Platonists uh, think this, that say the number two really exists. 
out there. Okay, but it's not a physical object. Uh, it's a non-physical thing, but it's not. It's not a personal agent. It's an abstract object, as the terminology goes. Now, abstract objects, by definition, by nature, don't enter into causal relationships. The, the, the number two doesn't do anything. The, if the number two is something that exists. There's disagreement about this. I happen to think it doesn't, but if you thought that it did, you, you wouldn't make sense to think of the number two as something that, that did things, that caused things, because of the type of thing that it is. The, the only type of non-physical thing that it makes sense to think can actually do things is some kind of personal reality. So we're, we're led at the end of this uh, to say that the first physical event must have had a non-physical personal cause that's outside and independent of the universe. That's starting to look a lot like a creator god. So that's a slightly different way of, of using the idea that there was a, a start, a beginning of the universe in a, in a cosmological argument. Have you all got enough liquid... Things you need to rehydrate. I'm sweating gallons up here. <laughs> There's an unused glass and uh, so you keep the old brain cells wet. You've, you've got some. Have you got any? You? Oh, they're there if you want them. That's obviously a, a slightly less kind of abstract argument, and you can use a lot of concrete examples and things. Sort of set up rows of dominoes and um, thinking you know, people with scientific experience and so on, and cosmology and all that. And it's it's a very good argument for countering the idea that belief in God is kind of anti-scientific and so on. And, and the idea that I mean, lots of A-level students will say to me, "Oh, you can't believe in God because science explains everything," you know. This kind of idea. So if you start an argument by saying, the scientific evidence shows that there was a beginning of the universe. Now let's think about what that implies. Uh, then it, it immediately counters this idea, you know, Christianity is anti-scientific and science explains everything. It's like, well, science shows you that there's a beginning of the universe, but does it explain why there's a beginning of the universe? No, it doesn't. Uh, so, again, boing to a different topic. Uh, teleological, uh, Greek telos means a goal or an aim. So arguments about things being designed with a purpose to achieve a certain goal. Um, a brief uh, interlude here. As Craig says that the, the explanatory adequacy of, of neo-Darwinism uh, evolutionary theory mechanisms of random mutation and natural selection and so on with respect to observed biological complexity have been sharply challenged I've put a couple of the books up here uh, from the kind of intelligent design kind of camp of thinking on these issues uh, and Craig is uh, sympathetic at least towards uh, that way of looking at things uh, he says advances in microbiology have Disclose the breathtaking complexity of the micro machinery in a single cell, 
not to speak of higher level organisms, the field of origin of life studies is in turmoil, as all of the old scenarios for the chemical origin of life in the primordial soup, as it's put, have collapsed and no new better theories on the horizon. The scientific community has been stunned by the discovery of, of how complex and sensitive the, the initial conditions must be in order for life in the universe, uh, for the universe to even permit the origin and evolution of intelligent life, if evolution is how it got here. Uh, and he thinks that it's undoubtedly this last discovery, it was sometimes called the fine-tuning of the initial conditions, that's got the biggest punch. And because uh, evolution is such a... Uh, not just intellectually, but also politically... Uh, kind of fought over a field of debate uh, Craig tends to present a fine-tuning design argument and not really to get into issues about um, evolution and creation and, and all that he kind of sidesteps the whole issue and says kind of, whatever you think about that and Christians disagree about that just as much as you know, non-Christians disagree about that and so on here is a design argument that is about the preconditions of there even being a possibility of life uh, evolving in that kind of Darwinian way and the argument from the cosmic fine tuning Uh, I think I've got a little video example here supposing we had a kind of giant universe creating machine Uh, here is our fantastic giant universe creating machine on this machine we put an individual dial for every kind of law of nature and initial condition that we want to give a universe that we're going to create and each of these dials can be set to a particular strength of relative strength and weakness. So if we took one that's set up the way that our universe actually is, we took the gravitational force, say, and we changed how strong, how weak that force was by a very small percentage, and we kept everything else the same, representing the way that our universe is actually structured in terms of its physical laws, and then we press the create a universe button, the universe that would be created, as it were, by this machine would be a dull, lifeless, uncomplex, uninteresting place. It might be a place that would only last uh, a few fractions of a second before it reclapsed on itself, maybe. Uh, all sorts of things happen depending on which law you vary, but it was quite a shocking kind of discovery to the scientific community to see how fine-tuned, how kind of on a knife edge, as it were, the initial conditions and the laws are for it even to be possible for there to be anything like um, chemistry happening, let alone sort of biochemistry, let alone complex life. Different conditions affect to different degrees these things and have different outcomes on on how you change them and sort of running the numbers theoretically, as it were. Um, But a lot of people looked at that kind of evidence and said well it, it just it makes the universe look like a put up job it just smells fishy as it were um, Craig puts a, an argument from it like this says this fine tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity chance we're just lucky that things are that way or design second premise it's not due to physical necessity or chance conclusion therefore it's due to design and he'll say that these are exhaust the explanatory options Um, it can't be due to physical necessity 
because the university the, these laws are contingent things they could could be different we can we can see what the universities would be like if they had these differences in our theoretical models and so on again it's relying on the claim that the universe doesn't exist in the way that it does necessarily logically necessarily but there's no physical necessity to them either they they you, they could be different we could have had a law of gravity that was half as strong as the gravity we do have. We could have had a uh, nuclear weak force that was a lot weaker and atoms didn't hold together or what have you. Um, can't be due to chance either because the, by the time you, you've assigned uh, a, at least a good guess to the probability of all of the individual values being the way that they need to be and work out the compound improbability of all of them, the numbers are just hugely staggering. Um, and on individual conditions as well there's an Oxford mathematician called Roger Penrose who calculates one particular um, part of this fine tuning as, as being at a probability of one part in 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123 in terms of scientific sort of powers notation how many zeros that's, that's, that's so big a number that you could not write it out longhand because there's not enough room in the universe to write it out longhand, even if you put one zero on every fundamental particle that exists in the universe, you still wouldn't have enough room to write that number down longhand. And that's only for one part of the fine-tuning. So the, the odds of things just happening to turn out this way by, by luck, given that there's one universe... Are astronomical, are beyond astronomical, literally. Um, that seems like a very poor explanation, the sort of explanation you wouldn't accept in any other kind of uh, arena of, of explanation. And so by eliminating those alternatives, he arrives at saying, well, best explanation is that it was design. There's numerous different ways that you can put this argument. Um, think back to what we were talking about, the principle of credulity. You should believe that things are the way they appear to you to be unless you've got good reason not to. Um, this is a fascinating book on this problem, The Goldilocks Enigma by Paul Davies. Uh, he's an agnostic cosmologist. He says, everyone agrees that the universe looks as if it were designed for life because of this fine-tuning. Um, atheist Fred Hoyle, who was actually one of the first discoverers of one of these instances of fine-tuning, and it kind of really knocked his atheism and he admitted uh, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics so even you know atheist and agnostic cos cosmologists and scientists say you know it sure looks like a set up job and then have to give some explanation of why they think it's not uh, that at least I think shows that this is evidence that puts the burden of proof on the, on the sceptic on the atheist uh, it clearly is a bit of evidence that, that at least initially on the face of it is supportive of a belief in God uh, by the principle of credulity from, from Swinburne there um, so if we argued you know, we should take things to be the way they seem to be unless given sufficient reason for doubt the fine tuning of the cosmos seems to be the product of design sure looks that way therefore we should take the fine tuning to be the product of design until and unless we're given sufficient reason to doubt that conclusion um, to argue it in a more specifically kind of intelligent design theory way of arguing it, uh, something I've written a little about, 
you could argue like this um, things that uh, exhibit that have specified complexity, a particular type of complexity that I'll explain momentarily are most probably designed the fine tuning of the Big Bang exhibits specified complexity therefore that fine tuning is most probably designed the crucial term here is specified complexity it's a, a kind of a rule or a criteria of spotting when something's the product of an intelligence doing something um, and it's a rule that as one of the papers I've published shows that even a lot of atheists agnostics uh, people who aren't in the intelligent design movement and so on agree with this is not a particularly controversial claim here um, if you're, uh, you know the game Scrabble we have the little the letters on different tiles and you draw them out of a bag and you take turns to try and make words out of the letters on a board to score points according to what word you construct do you have this game where you come from um well that's the game you have these little tiles and they have so the letter P is like worth three points if you can use it on the board and so on and you take turns to try and make these words so you're drawing Scrabble letters out of a bag and suppose you drew this sequence of letters uh, there now you could clearly you could look at that sequence of letters if you walked into a room and you saw that sequence of letters on, on the table uh, and you wouldn't be at all forced to conclude that somebody must have designed that sequence of letters. Um, they, they could have done, but, but just from looking at the letters, you've got no particular reason to think that they did. Because it's, it's a complex and unlikely sequence of letters. It's quite a long sequence of letters, and that's one particular sequence of letters out of a hugely bigger number of possible sequences of letters of that length. So the probability that you drew that particular string of letters out of the Scrabble bag is, is quite unlikely. But it's not specified. That is, it doesn't match an independently given pattern, a pattern that you haven't just read off the actual event itself. So you can very easily get away with saying, oh, maybe that just happened by luck. That's just, just chance. Similarly, if you saw the letters D-O-G, the English word dog, on the table, okay, it's specified that matches an independent pattern. But it's not very complex. It's not very unlikely that if you playing Scrabble, you might draw out the letters D-O-G in turn. Because it's, it's not a very long word, it's not particularly unlikely that you'd get that sequence of letters or a short sequence of letters that that made an English word, a short word. But if you came into the room and you saw Scrabble letters arranged on a table and they spelt out this sentence from Plato, from the Laws, where he says, all things do become, have become, and will become, some by nature, some by art, and some by chance, then surely you would conclude that someone had deliberately arranged those letters in that sequence. Because it's both uh, an unlikely, complex sequence of letters, like the first one that we looked at, but also it's specified. It matches an independently given pattern. This is already said by Plato. This is a grammatical English sentence. Uh, 
but unlike the short word like dog or this or that or whatever it, it's, it's such a long such an un- unlikely match that it becomes implausible to say oh you could have got that match by, by chance by luck and so it's this combination of an unlikely event a very unlikely event with an independent pattern that uh, in lots of situations tends to make it rational for us to think that something is the product of design that's the, the argument and you can see this, that kind of, uh, of criteria being used um, by people of all sorts of different worldviews, whether or not they agree with intelligent design theory um, if they're doing cryptography or forensic science, you know, uh, did he fall or was he pushed? Um, <laughs> well, what are the chances that he imbibed that amount of poison in that amount of time? Could it have just been bad luck or was it murder? Um, did this student copy their, their, their essay off another student and it's an instance of fraud or one scientist copying another's work so it's fraud? Or could they have just arrived at exactly the same result by chance, you know, exactly the same order of words by chance? Um, that kind of looking for a very unlikely match with an independently given pattern uh, in our general experience tips us off to something being by design Um, so you you look at this advert for spaghetti uh, alphabet spaghetti you don't look at this advert of a plate of spaghetti that says how about eating out Uh, you don't look at that photo and think I wonder how long the photographer Spent randomly emptying cans of alphabet spaghetti onto plates until that sentence just happened to come out. That's at least not your idea of what the most plausible explanation of this arrangement of letters is. You immediately think, oh, how clever of the photographer to arrange those letters in that sequence in order to produce that advert. Sure, you might say, well, it could have come about by, by chance. If I showed you an even longer sentence, that becomes more and more implausible, the more and more unlikely it is. But even something of, of that amount of complexity, uh, you tend to think, ah, well, I must have, the most likely explanation was, was design. Um, it's not just texts and so on. I mean, if we take, this is uh, Mount Rushmore in America, because the four faces of presidents of the USA carved into this mountainside. Um, they have a very uh, complex shape, those heads. But the back of this mountain is very complex as well. There's probably only one mountain in the world that's eroded in exactly that shape at the back. But there is a difference between the back of the mountain and the front of the mountain with the heads on. Not only is the front of the mountain a very unlikely shape, it also matches some independently given patterns. So those are human heads. Those, the back of the mountain we can very easily explain by erosion, forces of nature, wind and rain and so on. We don't give that explanation for the front of the mountain, even if we didn't know what the cause of that mountain was. Even if we, you know, the first rocket ship to get to Mars and we set down on Mars and we find that the face on, the so-called face on Mars really is like a giant Mount Rushmore. Um, we didn't know who created them or how it got there or anything, but we would look at that kind of pattern and say intelligence must have done it. That's the most plausible explanation. Well you know, books have authors, musical schools have composers, portraits have artists, computer programs have programmers. 
So we might infer that anything that has this kind of specified complexity is probably designed. And the most plausible candidate for who that designer was when you're talking about a designer of the whole physical universe is surely God. I mean, you could say maybe it was a really advanced alien from a parallel world, but then you start asking questions about, well, doesn't that alien contain any specified complexity or depend for its existence on any fine-tuning in its universe? If you're going to avoid an infinite regress of explanations in terms of things that contain specified complexity, you'd have to arrive at an explanation that doesn't contain specified complexity. Now, a necessarily existent being contains no specified complexity. Because for something to be complex, it has to be contingent. It has to be such that it could be this way, but it could have been the other way. And therefore, when, when one of those ways happens, that contingent event happens, that rules out one possibility rather than another, gives us information and so on. Um, but if there's a necessarily existent being, it has no, no unlikeliness to its being, as it were. It, it's, it exists with the probability of one, like the ontological argument shows. Um, so that's a very plausible termination to this regress of explanations that is otherwise caused by giving an explanation in terms of design to something. You have to end up with an undesigned designer, as it were. Just as with the cosmological argument, you end up with an uncaused causer. Uh, And those two concepts dovetail very nicely together, uh, of course. Uh, Anything on that, or uh, I haven't covered obviously lots of the uh, objections that might be raised to the argument, um, parallel universes and so on, but uh, Craig does in his book. That gives you an outline of the kind of structure of the argument and the fact that there's, there's quite a few different ways of phrasing what's basically the same argument. Um, but just because one way of phrasing the argument can be stronger or weaker than another, just because one way of phrasing the argument might not convince someone, maybe another way of phrasing it would do. Hmm. Uh, well, the last of our quartet of arguments. Um, I think this is a really good one, the moral argument, particularly because it connects really immediately with people's day-to-day experience. You know, ontological argument might be just for people who are interested in modal, modal logic. Uh, cosmological argument, that might be really interesting to people who are involved in science and cosmology. Same with the kind of teleological argument. Um, involves a bit of maths, a bit of science and so on but the moral argument I think most immediately plugs into people's intuitions and their experience of living day by day and so perhaps has the broadest kind of accessibility um, as, as an argument maybe uh, Craig puts it like this uh, premise one, if God does not exist objective moral values and duties do not exist. Secondly, objective moral values and duties do exist. It therefore follows that God exists. Uh, A slightly more straightforward way of putting it, I think, is to say um, here, for if objective moral values exist, then God exists. 
objective moral values exist, therefore God exists. Um, but there is an advantage to putting it in the way that Craig does because you can quote a lot of atheists who support this first premise. There are a lot of atheist philosophers and writers who will say things like, because there is no God, there are no objective moral values. Um, you can also actually quote a lot of atheist writers who believe that there are objective moral values. Um, and so as I do in one of my talks, you can support both premises of the, of the moral argument simply by quoting from atheists. Um, <laughs> which, uh, generally, if you can quote an atheist on your side, that has a bit more of a, uh, uh, an impact uh, than quoting someone who agrees with your basic position, quoting a, a theologian or a Christian philosopher, um, because the... Uh, rightly or wrongly, the audience will tend to see the atheists as a less biased sort. Of, they're not biased towards your position, at least. But you're saying they do agree with this bit of my position. Um, so that it allows you to put an interesting kind of spin on it, the way that, that Craig does. Um, objective. Uh, we covered that a little bit earlier this morning. The, the idea that something is a fact independently of what I believe about it, what I feel about it, what I decide about it, what we feel, believe, decide, etc. Um, that if we have a disagreement, if we have a, a difference of opinion, say about the morality of the Holocaust, a typical philosopher's example, extreme case. Um, one person says, I think the Holocaust was evil and another person says, well, I don't think it was evil. Um, there's clearly a, a, a difference of opinion there. Um, the moral objectivist would say that there's also a disagreement there, and that at least one of those two views, since they contradict each other, must be wrong, must be untrue, must be false. Whereas the moral subjectivist, sometimes called the moral relativist, would tend to say, well, we have a, 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 a difference, sure. Your opinion is it was right, my opinion is it was wrong, but there's no fact of the matter. It's not that we're really disagreeing or contradicting each other, because there's no truth of whether or not it was right or wrong that's something that's independent of what we think about it or feel about it it's just that's your opinion this is mine we differ now you like strawberry ice cream I really like chocolate ice cream um, we differ but we're not really disagreeing with each other I'm not really saying that no chocolate ice cream really is better than strawberry ice cream and, and vice versa we're, we, that's just our taste we, our preferences differ um, now is it the same way or not when you talk about moral disagreements differences when you someone says torturing a baby for fun is wrong and someone says no it isn't sure there's a difference there but is there a real disagreement is one of those parties at least got to be wrong about it um, I think with for most people it's easy to give examples and you can do that of course in a very creative media friendly way as well where uh, it very ra readily brings out people's intuition that no, really, there is an objective right and wrong. That certain things just are evil, and certain ways of behaving are good. 
and if people don't agree with that then they are misinformed at the very least uh, if not you know evil themselves kind of thing um, so I think you can readily uh, and very in a very media friendly way as well uh, build uh, this uh, argument on the intuition that there are objective moral facts and so on let's take it through the premises uh, put it this way if God does not exist objective moral values do not exist um, French atheist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre uh, he said existentialists a type of atheist uh, in Sartre's case at least uh, he said find it extremely disturbing that God no longer exists for along with his disappearance goes the possibility of finding values in an intelligible heaven sort of platonic realm of values there would no longer be any a priori any sort of necessity to good since there'd be no infinite and perfect consciousness to conceive of it um, the, the idea of perfection isn't something that can uh, be grounded in our uh, disagreeing and fallible and finite uh, world of people according to Sartre uh, atheist Paul Kurtz from America says the central question about moral and ethical principles concerns their ontological foundation there what kind of thing are they if it's true that you know, justice is a good thing what sort of reality what sort of existence does that principle have what's its foundation in, in reality if values are not anchored he says in some transcendent ground something that goes above and beyond the individual the society and so on they're purely ephemeral purely relativism and just a matter of taste um, British atheist Julian Bugini says if there's no single moral authority and in context he clearly means if there's no God we have to, in some sense, create values for ourselves. There's a famous book by an Oxford atheist called J.L. Mackey, or Mackay, um, called Inventing Right and Wrong, Ethics, Inventing Right and Wrong. Uh, we have to create values for ourselves, Professor Bugini, and that means that moral claims are not true or false. You may disagree with me, but you cannot say I have made a factual error. You'll notice in lots of people's language that people will buy into this idea of what's called the fact-value distinction. I'm very hot on not letting people get away with, with making this distinction because it assumes, illegitimately, that values are not something to be considered under the category of facts. I think a lot of people have the idea that facts are purely concerned the kind of things that we can know through scientific methodology. And since we can't know values through scientific empirical methods, you know, science will tell me that if I put arsenic in Aunt Mabel's tea, it will kill her. Science won't tell me whether or not I ought to put arsenic in Aunt Mabel's tea. Um, but that, I, in and of itself, doesn't show that therefore values are not facts. It just means that if they're facts, they're not the sort of facts that we can access through doing science. Of course, a lot of atheists will try and push the idea that the, the only kind of way you can know anything is through doing science. Um, but we looked a little earlier at some of the problems that kind of approach to knowing things has with generating an infinite regress, uh, for example. Uh, J.L. Mackey, I mentioned earlier, um, fascinating uh, in that he makes this admission. He says, if there are objective values, they make the existence of a god more probable than it would have been without them. 
Thus we have a defensible argument from morality to the existence of God. He then, of course, goes on to say, if we adopted instead a subjectivist account of morality, this problem will not arise. So for Mackey, he said, um, if there were objective moral values, that would be a good reason for believing that there's a God. Since I don't believe that there's a God, I must reject the idea that there are objective moral values. I must embrace subjectivism about values instead. I must be willing to kind of bite the bullet and pay that price. I think that that is a huge price tag. I think that's such a big price tag that that move is actually uh, irrational and self-contradictory indeed. Um, Start out this way. Which is really the bigger problem? This is the kind of dilemma for the person faced with the moral argument. Which is the bigger problem? On the one hand, having to believe that, that there's a morally perfect God. On the other hand having to believe that moral subjectivism is true, which is the the bigger price tag to pay. I want to ask people. Richard Dawkins, a wonderful quote from him, says, there's a non-overlapping and exhaustive distinction between ideas that are false or true about the real world, factual matters in the broad sense, and ideas about what we ought to do. Normative or moral ideas for which the words true and false have no meaning. He's taking quite an extreme stance on this. Some would not say have no meaning, but just um, uh, don't um, tell us anything that's objectively real. Normative or moral ideas for which the words true or false don't really put us in touch with reality or don't even have any meaning in Dawkins' case. So that, can you really kind of swallow that? Do you really want to look at the Holocaust and say, um, when someone says that was evil, they don't really mean anything, or they're not really disagreeing with the person who says, no, it was good. Um, that, there, that there isn't a, actually a fact of the matter, that it's not true to say that torturing a child just because you happen to get some sort of wicked sense of fun out of it uh, is good. <laughs> if someone thinks that and behaves that way, that, that, that there's something wrong with that view. Really? Are you really prepared to say that? Pay that price just to avoid believing in, in God? Um, you know. Um, certainly you can also quote atheists defending the idea that there are objective moral values. Um, Colin McGinn, wonderful book on virtue theory, ethics, evil and fiction, he talks in the introduction about defending a strongly objectivist or cognitive view of moral realm. Kyle Nielsen, atheist, says, moral truisms, things like the Holocaust was evil, you shouldn't torture children just for the sheer heck of it. Uh, Moral truisms are as available to me or to any atheist as they are to the believer. You can be confident of the truth of these moral utterances. They're more justified than any sceptical philosophical theory that would lead you to question them. He's kind of saying, that kind of intuition, torturing children for fun is wrong, is a properly basic belief. It's something that's just so intuitively obvious and known to you that it's going to defeat any of the arguments that we know of, at least, that that are brought against it. Um, Back to our sort of reformed epistemology um, from earlier. Uh, Atheist Russ Schaefer-Landau, really good book of his defending um, moral objectivism. Although, of course, later on in the book he tries to argue, but don't worry, that doesn't lead you to having to believe in God. 
There I don't think he does so well, but at the beginning of the book I think he does really well in defending moral objectivity. So some moral views are better than others, uh, despite the sincerity of the individuals, the cultures, the societies that endorse them. Some moral views are true, others false, and my thinking them doesn't make them so. The truth or falsity of my moral views don't depend on me or us. Individuals and whole societies, he points out, can be seriously mistaken when it comes to morality. Um, the best explanation of this is that there are moral standards not of our own making, that there are objective facts of morality. Morality is something to be discovered rather than something to be invented by us. Um, now, think of this extra little uh, complification here. I'd argue this. A, a moral subjectivist who con would contradict themselves were they to claim that people ought, in an objective sense, ought to believe the conclusion of any argument for moral subjectivism. Think of what an argument for moral subjectivism would be trying to do. It would be trying to convince you that uh, the, the only rational position to take is that moral subjectivism is true and moral objectivism is false. But to be convinced by that argument and to think, well, because of that argument, I should change my mind. Um, doesn't that require you to buy into values, principles like, I ought to try and be rational. I ought to give a fair hearing to an argument to change my mind if it seems convincing. And so on. And yet, of course, any argument for moral subjectivism would be an argument saying that there are, well, there are no such values that you ought to buy into or follow in an objective sense. So how can you possibly argue for the position? I don't think there, there, there cannot be sufficient counter-evidence to the intuitive belief that there are objective moral values. <laughs> uh, Frederick Nietzsche famously said, he asked, why should you pay attention to the truth? What's, what's all this concern with, with making sure that we believe things because we think they're true? Why don't I just say, well, it's, it's up to me what I believe. I'm going to believe what I like, what makes me comfortable, what, what gives me power over other people, um, because that's what I've decided my goal in life is going to be. I'm not concerned with, with understanding the truth. I'm concerned with making the most of my experiences, getting the most out of other people. Why pay attention to the truth? Hitler's favorite philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, how could we possibly let a moral subjectivist uh, convince us that they, they were, were true through an, through an argument? If they try and argue for their view, it seems to me they are implicitly undermining their view. Uh, it's just uh, a viewpoint that they're trying to force on people. It's a totalitarian move to say that there is no no objective moral value. It's not the people who believe that there are values that are totalitarian. At least if you believe that there are moral values, you can have this belief, that being totalitarian and forcing your views on other people is objectively wrong. That's the only way in which you can support such a belief. If you don't believe, if you don't hold a position that can say forcing your views on other people or whatever is objectively wrong, then, of course, that opens the door to forcing your views on other people if you feel like it. 
hence back to the, the summary of, of the argument. And actually, it's one where you can support both premises by quoting different atheists. Now, of course, those, those atheists are d- disagreeing with each other in a very real sense. Those who say, yeah, sure, if God doesn't exist, then there are no objective moral values. Or, or if there were objective moral values, then we'd have to believe in a God would say that and then would tend to say but of course there aren't any objective moral values and those who say yeah there are objective moral values come on guys would of course then tend to say but that doesn't mean we have to believe in God but if both groups are half right as it were in this particular way then both groups are fundamentally wrong in their worldview. Um, so I think that's a, a really powerful argument myself. That's one of my favourite arguments, the moral argument. And I think it's got a quite a broad appeal. Uh, ties most easily into uh, sort of media cultural examples and so on. I often use a, use a film clip of a particular moral situation or something to illustrate some of the points and so on. Um, so there's a lot that you can kind of do creatively work with that argument fa- fairly easily. I'm sure you can be creative with the others as well, but it's, you know, it seems to be harder to be creative with the ontological argument with an audience than with the, the moral argument.